Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Martin. I'm Hayden. I'm Gary. Good to talk to you all again. So today is part two of our discussion about open source sustainability. If you haven't listened to the first part, which was episode 53, then go back and listen to that first. We're actually recording this straight after we paused last time. And Gary, I know you had a point you wanted to make, so let's start there. Martin, you mentioned the, the, the tech debt problem if they don't like support the upstream projects that they're depending on. We had a company, I'm not going to name names, that became so notoriously bad for using Pigeon that we started looking what IP blocks they owned so that when their employees would come into IRC, we could direct them to their help desk. <laughs> And that, this was just an undue burden because they didn't support their employees in the right way that they ended up coming into our chat room for support when it's like, my password doesn't work. And we're like, we can't help you. And that's just an, another case where it's like, we never got anything from that company except this huge burden of support, which they should have taken care of on their end. It's like them throwing some money at us would have been great, but them just even supporting their users better would have been even better, right? Right. and. Those experiences that you described there are not dissimilar from a couple of years ago where there was a real tipping point in the popularity of Hacktoberfest. Mm. And that desire to earn yourself a T-shirt through your code contributions led to undue burden on open source maintainers dealing with basically spam on a web scale and to their credit, you know, DigitalOcean and GitHub, you know, found ways to combat and skew this. But I think the whole program got suspended for five days whilst this was worked out how to, to deal with this problem. But the point that you're making is absolutely correct, which is sometimes these passion projects, people that invest their own spare time into this get subsumed by self-entitled organizations. It's funny you should mention this. I was going to bring this up earlier when we were talking about entitlement. And one of the reasons why we don't see it so much in the pigeon community anymore is, I think it was back in about 2006 or so, we coined the term free software user entitlement syndrome, mm -hmm. where because these users can talk to the developers directly, they think that simply by them using the software, they think that entitles them to get, have like creative control over the project and like their answers are the only way to go. So like as a maintainer contributor, you end up combating that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's not good for anyone. <laughs> I also like the conversations that start with, have you fixed the alphabet problem? And it's just like, well, you clearly know what you're talking about, but I have no idea. It's like this, you know, this assumed context that I know immediately what you're referring to. And it's like, unless you can direct me to a bug report, I have no idea what you're talking to me about right now. So I have another solution I want to put forward. And that is something I've experienced with, with my own company and something I want to hear Gary talk about with his own project. And that's we normalize the expectation that free software users return to paying for their software. And some of the, our listeners may not remember, but at one point in time, if you wanted a copy of Linux, you, you bought it, <laughs> you paid for it. There was ways to get copies made by third parties for less, but you still end up having to send off for you know a pack of five or six CDs 
that you paid somewhere between five and sometimes fifty dollars for. And one way to address entitlement is to have those users actually contribute financially. Again, money is not always the panacea. But when I founded Penguin and listed it on the store, we listed it for $10. And with that funding, I was able to hire developers on contract to assist with support. And in a way, it lessened the mental burden of providing support because I knew that the support requests coming in were users who had paid for that support. So it didn't necessarily feed that negative entitlement, but it users had buy-in. And I knew that the support we were providing were providing to users who had contributed something. I, I see potential app stores like what Elementary provides and open source apps available through other app stores as a potential solution. I'm curious what, in particular, Gary would think about this as the owner of a project. What would it mean to you if you sold Pigeon? The app stores are something we're definitely looking at. Martin mentioned earlier how it's very difficult to find a way to even donate to a project. Probably about a year ago or so, I added a menu item in Pigeon under the help menu for donations. To my knowledge, we have not received a single donation. On the plus side, we also haven't received a single complaint about it, so I'm pretty sure nobody's actually found it. So I don't want to make this political or anything, but Pigeon on Windows has always been ridiculously painful. That's been through a lot of things, the way code was abstracted, stuff like that. I could tell you horror stories nobody wants to hear. But the way Windows being different from Linux, where you have to distribute all of your dependencies and all of that, that has caused us to have this just giant blob of dependency data stuff, which is one of the reasons why Pigeon on Windows has such an older version of GTK and stuff like that is we can't easily reproduce that. So whenever we have to do anything on Windows, it's painful because you've got to build on a Unix shell and do all this other stuff. So we've considered putting it in the Microsoft store for some amount of money. We, we haven't decided on that yet. And then the discussion always has always been, do we still provide the Windows executables for free on our site? And then people are paying for the convenience of getting it through the Microsoft App Store, right? Because otherwise, if, if we don't actually provide the binaries ourselves, then some third party is going to come along. They're going to provide Windows binaries, which may or may not come with extras, yeah. malicious or not malicious, right? We, we don't know. So, like, w- we've been trying to balance all of that. But then there's been all these issues coming up about the App Store, about specifically the Microsoft App Store and whether or not you can charge for an open source application lately. And that kind of slowed down any momentum we had looking at that. The ambiguity around open source apps on the Microsoft Store, thankfully, has been cleared up. So I may have had a small part in that, but that has been cleared up. Yeah, that does seem to be the case now, yeah. Now, as for selling software, I think that when it comes to individual applications, end users are kind of used to paying a few bucks here and there. But ultimately, most software these days is free, in quotes. Free at the point of installation or free as an upgrade to your operating system. And where software companies tend to make money is through services and monthly recurring revenue. And so you look at a project like Nextcloud, for example, where they make their money isn't selling the software. They don't sell an app to you. They sell a managed, hosted version of it. Of course, you can self-host it. It's all open source. But 
a lot of people and organizations don't want to spend the time and the resources to do that. And so they'd rather just pay them X number of dollars or euros or whatever it is per month for the managed service. That's not necessarily applicable to every project or piece of software, but it certainly seems to be the modern way of doing things. Yes, and there's no reason why an organization that is charging a subscription for their tiered plans can't put some of that money aside to fund the projects that they are most dependent upon. But, you know, as we've already discussed, just having money on the hip in order to fund some projects doesn't mean it's actually easy to fund them. Earlier on, Hayden talked about like the good old bad old days of buying, you know, box sets of, you know, CDs and what have you. I mean, these days it would just be one glorious thumb drive. But nevertheless, if we were to do that, let's imagine that um, we go out and buy a copy of our enterprise distribution. Who's really going to do that in this day and age? You know, the, the Linux distributions have been commoditized to such an extent now, particularly when you get to the place where they're used the most, which is in the cloud as container operating systems. It's very difficult to add value to those distros in that use case that people will pay a recurring fee for their upkeep and maintenance. And Red Hat's model of support was very successful. I'm not sure how much runway that has into the future. I think Canonical's got an interesting approach with offering certifications and compliance guarantees against those things, because that's something a number of organizations, particularly the financial sector, absolutely need in order to do their tick boxing on the way that they deploy their applications into the cloud. But at the end of the day, that is an organization that is offering that curated collection of software together as a holistic thing and maintaining it. But how does that money make its way back to those individual projects that, again, may be supported by a few people? I don't know that anyone's tackling that problem. I always go back to the hire the developer thing. And if you can't necessarily hire that developer full time, well, what if, say, Canonical, Sousa, and Red Hat went three ways and just the developer had to send three invoices every month, let's say, and they could just contract for the three companies, not doing specific stuff for each of them, but just to work on that one key bit of infrastructure code or maybe even get Google and Facebook involved as well and, and split that. And, and yeah, okay, it's a bit of a hassle for the developer to have to send a bunch of invoices every month, but a clever enough developer could probably automate that, you would have thought, just create some PDFs and email them. I think that's happening though, right? I think that all of the organizations that you've just mentioned, Sousa, Canonical, Red Hat, Facebook, Google, are all hiring or have hired developers that are leaders in their respective technologies and communities that that is totally happening but that's not sustainable either because now you organization.com has that developer working for you 
But how is that any more sustainable unless you build a team around that individual? You know, when, when are they taking their holidays? Are they working six days a week? Are they working seven days a week? Are they taking all of their holiday entitlement? Are they taking any holiday entitlement? You know, I think the sustainability problem goes far, far deeper than simply hiring developers and rockstar developers at that and assuming that they will just continue to rockstar. I think that we are not thinking about the human condition in all of this particularly well and thinking about actually part of the sustainability is people need some time off and a break away from things. And are we building an environment around them to enable them to do that, to be human? That kind of comes back to what I was saying about open source being this global time zone free cross-culture thing where people just expect you to be online all the time. And I don't know there's an easy solution to that. If you do something that is inherently online, like open source software, then there's almost just an assumption that you will just always be there. And if you're not there right now, you will be within an hour or two because most people are just perpetually connected. They're either asleep or connected. And my understanding is a lot of uh, software people uh, well a lot of people generally in the modern world don't sleep very much these days well i i think that if you're right that that is the norm that that is the expectation the overwhelming expectation that is not sustainable and it's certainly not healthy from the point of view of the individuals who are on the receiving end of that expectation of always online well i remember for example the dropping of 32-bit binaries in ubuntu and that kicked off, I think, on a Friday and then just carried on throughout the entire weekend. And a bunch of canonical people who work in the UK who generally don't work on a Saturday and Sunday had to work. They had to deal with the blow-up of that. And they just had to do it in their spare time. They weren't getting paid to do it, but they couldn't just ignore it. These days, you can't just ignore something for two full days. It's difficult that if you're a known individual for a large organization it's difficult to dodge difficult questions out of hours. Yeah, and you must have had a bunch of that when you were working for Canonical. You were this hugely public figure. And, you know, I mean, you, you've basically alluded to it there, that you almost could never fully turn off, could you? No, and I think that, you know, for the conversation that we're having right now, that is not sustainable. That is not a lifestyle or an expectation to place on an individual paid as a salaried employee or not. That is not a sustainable outcome. And so surely the only solution to that is a change in culture, a change in expectation. I think that that's true, certainly. And that is an almost impossible task, certainly in the short term. That's something that is almost a generational issue. Which is why the open source community at large need to tackle this. If you go and look at all of the leading open source conferences, this topic about open source sustainability has been discussed for years. And that's in the contemporary situation. If we go back, the first reports around the sustainability of software of this nature first originated in 1987 with the Runesvelt report. And not a lot has actually changed to help the situation since then. So yes, I think it does require generational thinking to change expectations and behavior. And it's not about 
individual projects. It's about, and I, when I say environment here, I don't mean the blue skies and the trees and the oceans outside. I mean the environment in which open source software is created and the environment in which developers, maintainers, documentation writers, project managers, all of those people operate within that sphere. That environment needs to be changed to nurture and sustain the people that create this software. What we should do is boil down this entire discussion into some like 30 second TikTok videos and then we can get through to the next generation. <laughs> yep. I can't shuffle, Jen. <laughs> so I support a cultural shift towards recognizing the humanity of open source contributors. One of the ways we dealt with this always on expectation at Penguin was we had a distributed worldwide team. We had developers in the UK, Americas, and Hong Kong. That was one approach. But we also need to set the expectation that if you're relying on open source, particularly for your business, you know, if it's that critical to you, you need to pay for it. You either need to pay for it, you need to contribute it, you need to hire that developer, you need to participate in the upstream community. That, along with recognizing the humanity, I mean, we need the business case in addition to the environmental shift. And as part of that environmental shift, we also need to consider contributing directly ourselves to these projects and, and getting involved in the ways we can you know, the listeners of these, uh, of this podcast, how we can contribute, if not financially, to the open source projects we use. I feel a little bit awkward about that last piece about saying you, as casual consumers of open source, think about dipping into your pocket to support your favorite projects. Because my feeling is that, yes, there's a place for that, for sure. And Gary and I would both be very happy with a couple of extra cup of coffees a, a month, right? That would be lovely. But for the big stuff, the stuff that's driving the international economy, which is all tech-based, like all innovation and significant growth has some technology component to it, I feel like consumers are already dipping into their pocket to pay for the apps and services that they're using. You know, whether it's your monthly subscription to streaming services of different types or productivity tools that you're using on a daily basis, you're already paying into the economy that could ultimately and should ultimately have a responsibility to sustain the downstream technologies upon which they depend. So I'm not sure that shifting the funding model right necessarily is the right outcome here. I feel like it's those people that are collecting money for their products and services should be thinking about the sustainability and their responsibilities. Yeah, that's just one one part. In addition to enterprise and these companies that are relying on open source, having these committees and these funds and these programs. So recognizing the humanity of open source contributors, individual consumers contributing to projects they're passionate about financially with time, with code contributions, enterprise developing a culture of contributing financially or upstream. I think what we're going to come down to is that there's not one solution, but a handful of solutions, whether it's shifting the culture, 
individual contributions, corporate contributions, new business models altogether, whether they be SaaS or other forms, that all of these across the board are going to be part of the sustainability conversation. And we're just going to have to experiment and see what works. Well, do let us know what you think, dear listener. You can email show at linuxdowntime.com with your thoughts and opinions on this whole thing. But with that, we'd better wrap it up. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Martin. I've been Hayden. I've been Gary. See you later.